Well, good morning. Uh, that video you just saw was the journey we began five weeks ago, and we're going to finish it today. So if you have your Bibles, right now is the time to grab those. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be some in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Uh, I don't have a page number for you. It's really easy. It's the very last book in the Bible. And we're actually going to be looking at passages in chapter 21 and 22, which are the last two chapters in the Bible. So just start at the back and you should find it. Um, but we're going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 today. Um, good morning again. Merry Christmas to all of you. Um, I don't know how many family gatherings you have uh, planned this week, but yesterday marked our first one. It was our first Christmas gathering for the Parks family this year. So we hopped in a van and we drove to Cloverdale. That that beacon of light over there in Putnam County, to be at my parents' house. Uh, and and it's, it's a yearly tradition, and it gets more and more different each year. Um, because, you see, it's the same house that I lived in growing up, and we started, obviously, with just mom and dad and us kids. Uh, and then as we got older and began to date and marry, the, the, the gathering grew a little bit, and now everybody's married, and those married couples are having and adopting children, and it just grows and grows and grows until yesterday's scene, which I would describe as just pure chaos. Um, awesome chaos, I wouldn't trade it, but, but just chaos nonetheless, because uh, that living room in mom and dad's house, uh, in, growing up, seven people in there, it felt full. Um, but now we're jamming 20 people into that room, uh, seven of them which are uh, the age seven and under, um, and it's just different, right? And uh, my oldest brother was, was kind of observing this and remarking on it, you must know uh, one of the great joys in my life is to make fun of my brothers. Um, when I get a chance to do it publicly like I'm about to, I don't even eat for days. I'm just so full afterwards. But uh, he and his wife were sitting there and, and talking about how full the room was and how much different it was. Because being the oldest, she was the first kind of add-in, right? So she was number um, eight, I guess, if it will. You know, and now there's 20. And so they're talking about how different the room is. And, and he said this. I'm I, serious. He said this. He said, hmm, all because two people fell in love. Now, I don't know how he expected me to receive that, right? Maybe in his mind, he would think I would think something like, oh, man, that's, that's deep and, and powerful and moving, right? But what happened was I looked at him and I said, are you serious? All because two people fell in love? Was it your goal to find the cheesiest possible way to wrap that up? You know, and I was like, man, you've got to step away from the country music and the romantic comedies and come back to testosterone town with me over here, right? Because I don't know where you got that line, right? But see, as much joy as I got from picking on him and even doubling down and making fun of him in front of all you this morning, right, his point, though incredibly cheesy, was true, right, that if mom and dad hadn't met each other and hadn't got together, then there's 18 people in that room yesterday that just wouldn't exist. You take anything back far enough, right, there's a moment of origin. This is Christmas Sunday, right? For the last few weeks, we've been in this series that we're calling When Light Pierced the Darkness. And what we've tried to do is take you back to the beginning and show you where all of this began and to convince you, really, of this truth right here. That nothing that has ever happened impacts your life more than the birth of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Right? And we told you a series and truth of, uh, and of realities that now exist, and they all exist because of Christmas. They all exist because Jesus came. They exist because God came to our world in the form of a man in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us that, that he is the visible image of the invisible God, and that God in all of his fullness was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus. Right? So for five weeks, we've tried to tell you what all that means, that that God brings light into darkness. It's what he's always done. That Jesus is the light of the world according to himself, right? That those who, Jesus said that those who believe in him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Right, that the Bible says that we as humans actually love darkness, that we love the things that hurt us and harm us. It's why we all so desperately need Jesus to bring his light into our lives and rescue us. And then last week, Adam showed us how Jesus brings this light in and allows us to experience the fullness of life. Right, that no matter what we face in this life, right, there is joy and purpose and fulfillment and hope that nothing can take away because it's given to us by the eternal Jesus Christ. That regardless of our circumstances, we can have the fullness of life. That's what Jesus claims. And so we've already covered about how we need to be rescued. And then we've already covered, um, that's, that's what Chris is all about, that Jesus came on a rescue mission. Right? He came to live a perfect life and die in our place and rise again. So he came to free us from darkness and to forgive us of our sins and to offer us the fullness of life that can overcome even the worst moments here. All if we just believe and trust and submit our lives to him. What I'm here to tell you today is this. It gets even better than that. It gets even better than that. There's a hope that we are told of in the Bible, a hope that's unshakable, a hope of life to come after our earthly lives end. Right? A hope that's only made possible by Jesus and it's only made possible because he came. In the book of Revelation, we're told of things that God allowed uh, his servant John to see and some of the most powerful stuff in the book is when John talks about heaven. Right, what it will be like and what it will look like and, and things that, that God showed him about. It. In Revelation chapter one, 21 and verse 22, I'll start there. Here's what we're told. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And now how about that? The Bible begins in Genesis 1. The very first act of God is to create and usher in light. And it ends by telling us that in heaven there is no more need for a sun or a moon because the glory of God will illuminate that place. And the land that is Jesus is the light of that city. This is what I call the fullness of light. And I want us to read and hear together this morning about all the wonderful things that that reality will bring. There are so many benefits that, that are, there exist to living in the presence and light of God forever. But before we unpack those, we must know this. All of them that we'll discuss today, every last joyous, awesome, powerful truth, all of them are made possible because of Christmas. They're all made possible because God broke through into our world in human form. They all are possible because Isaiah says that those who are living in darkness will see a great light. We're told of a, a great light over the sky in Bethlehem shining down on the manger over the baby that lay in it. And why that light was used to draw people there, it also served as just foreshadowing, right? Because light had come into the world and in doing so, Jesus set in place a chain of events that will ultimately lead, ultimately lead to the fullness of light that we will experience in heaven. This light was unstoppable and it presses ahead of us today, pointing us and pushing us to the fullness of light. And so I want us to read together. It's going to be quite a few verses. You're going to have to follow along with me in this book of Revelation. And I want us to, after that, zoom in on just a few aspects of some things that we're told about. So look with me in Revelation 21. We're going to start in verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death 
or sorrow or crying or pain because all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Jump down to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. And its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city and nothing evil will be allowed to enter. Nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Pick it up in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. These leaves are used for medicine to heal the nations. And no longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night, for there, there will be no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. And then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angels to tell his servants that this will happen soon. I know there's a lot of verses there, okay, but these verses give us some of the most descriptive pictures in the Bible of what heaven is going to be like. Right? These verses are, 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 are just images drenched in truthful hope, and this hope is the ultimate hope. Right? This hope is actually at the heart of, of the Christian faith. It's everything that we have to anticipate on the other side of the grave. That's it. This is it right here. Okay. But there are a lot of people including people who would say they're, they take spirituality quite serious, who've never given really serious adult thought to what lies on the other side of the grave. I would argue that this, is, this might even be the case for the majority of our society, that as Americans, a lot of us have never given serious adult consideration as to what might happen to us when we die. So many of us have just never examined this truth closely, and sometimes that's even true for people who've been in churches for a long time. I was reading uh, from an author who wrote, he was having lunch with a friend, and the friend confessed this to him. He said, I know I'm supposed to want to go to heaven. I know that's supposed to be kind of the hope of my life, but frankly, if I'm honest, it sounds like a boring place. Somewhere along the lines, humans have gotten this idea that heaven will be the ultimate retirement village, right? that you can have risk and adventure and work and success and accomplishments in this life, but when you die, you get this eternal weekend in Palm Springs. Okay, there are people who have seriously asked questions like, will there be golf in heaven? Right? The, the rationale is that they can't be happy without golf here and that in heaven they're supposed to make me happy, right? So, so surely it'll be there. Well, the Bible tells us that heaven is a place of ultimate joy, not happiness. And so if you have this idea that something on this earth, that you need something on this earth uh, in order to be happy in heaven, you need to realize you're going to be changed when you get there. Right? You'll be changed in a way that you're going to rejoice in whatever heaven offers. And I mean, do we really think that God came for us and died for us and saved us for nothing more than an eternal round of golf? Plus, we're told that there's no anger, lying, cheating, or swearing in heaven. So I ask, how can golf ever be there, right? Um, Jesus did speak of another destination, one in which he said there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot more like the golf rounds I've been around. 
Um, so no golf in heaven. There will be baseball, and the Cubs will win the World Series every year, all right? Um, but no golf, okay, just to clear that up. Part of the hurdle that we always have when it comes to heaven is that we cannot fully understand something that we've never seen, right? And this presents the writers of Scripture with a challenge, a huge challenge whenever they write about heaven. And the challenge is this. They're trying to describe something to us that we've never experienced. Okay, so the Bible is full of pictures and images designed to express to us something that's beyond our experiences. Think of it this way. How would you describe a rocket or an iPhone to someone who lived 1,500 years ago? What would you do? You know, you'd have to find a way to use images that they were familiar with in their context and then try to paint them a picture. And so when the writers of scripture try to describe a little bit about what heaven will be like, they have to use images and pictures as reference points. And so honestly, we, we're given really a limited understanding of what heaven will actually be like. One reason is you can't explain something fully that we've never been to. And the other reason is, according to the Bible, that you and I couldn't even comprehend the total reality of it if it was revealed to us. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's just bigger than us. It's beyond us. Right? So there are things about our ultimate hope that we won't comprehend or understand until we actually get to experience them. We have to be honest about that at the start. But there are things we can't understand. There are things that we can grasp. There are things that can give us boldness, things that are worth celebrating and finding joy in. And to help us with that, the, the writers of scriptures have used these images to describe them to us, right? And because of, because of this, a lot of people get this kind of cartoon-type image of heaven in their heads, right? And they get this because they can't understand the spiritual reality that these images are intended to, con- to convey, and this is a big deal, right? Because what happens is that since they don't fully understand it, they find themselves not really hoping for what the ultimate hope of the Christian faith is. They find themselves asking questions like whether or not golf will be in heaven or admitting that it just seems kind of boring. And it's all because they have these jumbled images and it forms a cartoon picture in their mind of pearly gates and golden streets and everyone having wings and harps and togas. So in the moments that are to come that remain this morning, I want us to walk through a few of these images that the writers of Scripture give us to describe heaven and these images and truth that, that we saw right here in these passages in Revelation. And it's my prayer that we begin to get some clarity on this, right? So that when we celebrate Christmas, we know what we're celebrating this morning, right? So we can actually understand what Jesus has prepared for us. And one of the images that, that the writers of Scripture give us about heaven is this image of, of singing and shouting, Right? It's, it's off, it talks often in the Bible of people worshiping God a lot, and especially in heaven. And some of you, when you hear that, you're, you're pumped up about this this morning. Right? You, you love music. You love singing. You're the type of person who, who's driving down the streets, and you're just singing out loud along with the radio. You're the ones who think that every single church service would be better if I would talk less and we would play more music. Uh, and for you, singing is a, is a great experience, and you're, you're good at it, and you find joy in it. So the idea that you will get to sing for eternity seems right and wonderful you, for you. And some of you, well, you're just not so sure how you feel about this. And when I was in grade school, I was forced to go into music class with Mrs. Irwin. And then I was forced by the school to take part in convocations in which we would have to stand and sing songs for the whole school and parents would come in and videotape our misery. Right? And I've got to be honest with you, an eternity full of those school convoca- convocations is not my idea of eternal bliss. Right? And I've, I've set, I also tell you, I've, see, I've set near some of you during the singing parts of our service and the noises that come out of your mouth are not heavenly, right? But there is a good reason, okay, that the Bible mentions joyous singing and shouting so much in the afterlife. 
And this is why. Throughout history, when the human heart is too full for words and talking alone to do the job, people shout and sing. It's undeniable. The list of good athletic accomplishments in my life is incredibly short, which is almost depressingly short. But one shining moment in the midst of all the mediocrity happened in a college intramural basketball game when I made a shot from the corner at the buzzer to win the game, uh, which for our team was just a hugely exciting play. You know what my teammates didn't do? They didn't walk over to me slowly, shake my hand, and say, your shot has me feeling exuberant. (laughs) I'm quite satisfied that we ended up with more points than the other team. Yay, we won the game. No, we hollered and carried on and shredded out of there like we'd actually won a game that meant anything, even though we didn't, right? People sing at weddings when they need to express love. People sing at funerals when they're placing into the earth the body of someone that they love so desperately and they desperately need hope. And singing provides that. Little kids just sing when they're happy. My three-year-old, when she's having a good day, she'll carry conversations with me that she just sings all her responses back to me. Right? Singing and shouting have a way of expressing wonder and awe and beauty and joy and love and admiration in a way that nothing else can. It's a divine gift that's been given by God to humanity to be used for his glory. And this has been true throughout human history. Right? So the writers of scripture speak about heaven as a place of full, full of shouting and singing because the day is coming in which your heart will finally be as full as it's possible for a heart to be because you will experience God. And I just want you to think about that for a moment, to wrap your minds around that. The idea that singing will just naturally happen for you because for the first time in your existence, your heart will be as full as a heart could be. And it will be that way because you are experiencing God. Imagine you, ordinary you, born where you were, experienced what you have, you seeing God. That's what we read, right? Revelation 22, verse 3 and 4. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him, that's shouting and singing, and they will see his face. All our lives are marked by moments. They're marked by experiences that we uh, won't forget and these images are permanently ingrained into our minds. People will travel a long way to see the Rocky Mountains or to see the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls and when they get there, they'll just stand in awe and wonder for a little while. People witness the birth of their child. They see the face of someone they love and they will retain that memory for all of their life. Can you imagine you, you, really you, standing face to face with God? The God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who sent Christ to die on the cross for your sins. Can you imagine what it would be like when all the barriers between you and him have been removed and you feel the endless love that he has for you and you have the same level of devotion towards him for the first time in your life? Can you imagine seeing Jesus? reaching out and touching the scars that made your hope possible. The Bible says that you will experience in that moment a wonder and awe and joy that you cannot express or even imagine. And so of course you will shout. Of course you will sing. Because just talking or trying to be manly or whatever your reservation is will be so inadequate compared to what you're experiencing in that moment. A day is coming in which you will know and experience true joy that will be uncontainable. Would you like a hope? like that. There's another image that is often used in scripture when describing heaven, and it's a throne. It's a throne, right? A throne is not a common piece of furniture in our day. I don't think there are many thrones in your living rooms, right? But it was when the Bible was written. And so what the throne represents is that in the Bible, there's a picture presented of a community of love ruled by God with perfect fairness and goodness. And what the throne represents basically is justice. 
Heaven will be a place of ultimate justice. And if there's ever a place that there will be perfect justice, it's heaven. Okay, Revelation 21 said nothing evil will ever be allowed to enter. Revelation 22, no longer is there a curse on anything. Things won't be messed up there. Right? You and I both know that we live in a world where justice is really hard to come by. Uh, the LA Times had a, a terrific uh, story on this once. It was written by David Hagler, a guy who was a former referee and umpire. And Hagler wrote this story for the LA Times. He wrote, I was driving too fast in the snow one day in Boulder, Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. He said, I tried to be really polite, and I tried to talk this guy out of it. I, I told him how worried I was about my insurance going up, how careful of a driver I normally was, on and on and on. And he seemed, the officer just seemed really put off by this. And so in a, a really not-so-friendly manner, he said, well, if you don't like it, you can just go to court. And he handed me the ticket and walked away. Hagler continues, the first game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter up is that same policeman. He said, I recognize him, and he recognizes me, and the policeman looks at me and says, so how did the whole thing with the ticket go? And Hagler wrote, writes, I looked at him plainly and said, you better swing at everything today. See, we don't get that much, do we? We don't get many opportunities to, to make things right. And even when we do, we screw them up. Because justice in this world can be hard to come by. There are people in this world who get diseases for no reason at all. Right? There are people whose lives are taken by other human beings for the smallest and pettiest of reasons. Life just isn't fair. And it never has been. And I don't know how anybody, including the most optimistic person in our midst, can look at a world like ours and not ask, where is the justice? What's wrong with this world? And will it ever be made right? And the Bible says it will. It absolutely will be made right. The Bible says that among many other things that he is, that our God is a just God. And there will come a day, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but there will be a day when justice is going to roll like a river all over our existence. And yes, those of us who have become God's children in this life are to be his agents working for justice in all sections of our society now. But there will come a moment in the next life in which all of us will be gathered around a throne of perfect justice. And here's how the Apostle John put it. Around that throne I saw, a, I saw gathered a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. That vision from John came 2,000 years ago before we ever talked about diversity and multiculturalism. That the day is coming when gathered around the throne will be those from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, and they will be one. And then there will be no more terrorism. There will be no more hatred. There will be no more division between races and peoples. Only mutual respect and love and admiration and peace and justice. And we will all be brothers and sisters. And there on that day, every single wrong will be made right. Every injustice that's ever happened will be accounted for. And justice will be served. That is Christian hope. That is ultimate hope. And there's one last image that scripture gives us when it describes heaven. This one comes from Jesus in John 14. He said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Right, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Okay, we're told throughout scripture of a, having a mansion in heaven. Right? Now you shouldn't be thinking, oh, in heaven, I'm always going to get that bigger kitchen I always wanted. Sorry, that's not, that's not how it goes. Okay. The point of this is not that when you get to heaven, you're going to have the dream home you always wanted. The point of it is this, that when you get to heaven after all these years, you will finally, finally, finally be home. You'll be home. Right? The Bible tells us that in a deep, deep sense, we all are runaways. 
And when Jesus told that amazing story about the prodigal son in Luke 15, the story that showed the grace of God and his love for children, what does the son do to get in all the trouble? He ran away from home. The Bible says that in our sin, all of us run away from God, that we've rebelled, that we've strayed from him. And the day is coming for God's children in which we will come home. There's a desire for all of us to have a place where we are fully accepted, where we fully belong, of where we have security and identity, a place we can call home. It's one of the most powerful words in the English language, home. That word that means a place where we are fully known and fully loved. And though you may have some sense of that here, the truth is in this world we're never fully home, ever. But the day's coming. Some of the greatest words in scripture are found right there in Revelation 21. Now the dwelling of God is with human beings. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I mean, think of God personally wiping the tears from the eyes of every mother, father, and child that suffered loss. Think of a place where there is no more death. There's no more mourning or crying or pain because all those old things have passed away. See, one day, one day we'll be home. And our hearts will be filled with inexpressible joy. And God himself will dwell in the midst of his people with inexhaustible love and justice. And you can be there. Your character, your conscience will be cleansed. You will never again do or say or think anything that would produce a twinge of regret. You'll never have to wake up at night looking at the ceiling wishing you could do something over again. There will no longer be a sense of inadequacy or weakness or guilt or shame because there you will be a creature who reflects beauty uniquely and perfectly in the, the image of God. There you will be everything that you've ever been created to be. It is, it is awesome and amazing that Jesus came and wants to dispel darkness out of my heart here, right? It's awesome and amazing that he can bring the fullness of life here, even while all those terrible things can still happen and do. But it's even greater that there is a day coming in which God will rid the universe of sin and evil, and so all of sin's effects will disappear. Bodies that, that give out here will live on in glorious splendor there. Minds that are dark and confused here will flourish with endless creativity and beauty and intelligence there. Broken and failed limbs here will move and jump and dance and define grace and athleticism there because the old order of things has passed away. They're not there anymore. That's the fullness of light. It's the reality that if you are in Christ, you will experience. God promises it. It's a reality that is only made possible because he came for you. There are just three simple, really short things I want us to take from this truth this morning. Number one, this is just a reason to celebrate. That's why we're here. That's what Christmas Sunday is about, right? You you don't have to wait, right, to, to get to heaven to celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. If you, you open up your Bible, you read the Psalms, you read uh, Revelation, you read throughout the New Testament, right? You read all through the Old Testament. Scripture has these vivid, uh, descriptive pictures of celebratory worship in the Bible. And I'll tell you right now, none of it looks like white people Baptist worship. It just doesn't, okay? It's just, it's, they're, just, they're just exploding out of gratitude and joy. People who grasped what, what God has done on their behalf and they couldn't contain themselves anymore. Oh, if God would just do that in our hearts, right? In our midst. We just make a habit of celebrating what he's done more than asking him for what else we'd like. It would change our lives. Celebrate Christmas. Celebrate life. Celebrate Jesus. Celebrate grace. Celebrate hope. Celebrate what God's done. Secondly, this is a reason to hope. 
because we're not there yet, are we? Right, some of you, just right now, when you heard the word celebrate this morning, you didn't feel like it. Because you're not there. And, and not being there, you're in the midst of something that sure doesn't feel like something to be celebrated. I'll let you know now, you'll find our God to be faithful. You'll find that, that Jesus provides the fullness of life, even in this, if you turn to him. And you can hope, you can hope. Right? Because no matter what, if you're in Christ, there's nothing that can happen to you in this reality that compares with the joy that's waiting for you. You can hope this one because all struggles are temporary. You can hope because the God who made a way for you says that in this he's gonna bring good out of it. You can hope because a day is coming when the former things will pass away and endurance will no longer be necessary. Your faith will be sight. If nothing else this morning, cling to that and that should cause celebration. And lastly, always, this is a reason to share. I think of the famous Christmas song, go Tell it on the mountains, over the hills, everywhere that Jesus Christ is born, that he came to save, he came to rescue, he came to bring light to the darkness, he came to bring the fullness of life, and he came to make a way for you to get to heaven, the ultimate, unshakable, unconquerable hope. And if you don't know Christ this morning, this hope is not yours. We want nothing more than for you to, to share it with you today, for you to take hold of that. Right, talk to one of us. Come forward during the last song. Whatever it takes. Don't leave here without it. But if you know Christ, then you know he came for you. That he broke into your darkness and brought light. And your job, Jesus says, is to be a city on the hill. You are to take that light to the world. This week, as you gather, even with your family, as you give gifts, as you eat, as you give thanks, go forth with the banner of Jesus Christ. Go forth telling the world who he is and what he has done. Go forth celebrating in, hoping in, and sharing Christmas to all you're giving the avenue to. Let's pray.